Grace, the Amy Santiago of Royal Bloggers. And I'm Jessica, the Dorothy's Boring app of Royal Bloggers. And we'd like to welcome you to On Air, the podcast where two cynical Brits discuss the latest royal news and the truth behind the story. So, hello everyone and welcome back to the On Air podcast. We hope you enjoyed our episode last week, just when we'd given up all hope and we thought we're going to have to talk about the book. We we had a, an unlikely saviour came out at the 11th hour and died, so we could talk about <laughs> that instead. So, this episode we're going to be talking about the death of the ex-king of Greece, King Constantine. Well, actually, I should say this. Do you say Constantine, Constantine, or Constantin? I say Constantine or Constantine. I don't know. We it's it's a tradition on this podcast to just mispronounce everybody's names. So we'll that's his name. It's one of those variations. <laughs> um, and he's the former king of Greece, and he has died at the age of 82. So we are going to be talking a little bit about his death, a bit about kind of the history of the Greek monarchy and and his role in it, and kind of what happens now. Um, I think, you know, he, it was unsurprising. I don't follow him that closely, but it was unsurprising, I think, either way, because he had been unwell off and on for many years. You know, I remember at one point he was kind of having to be held up when he was walking around places and then he was in a wheelchair. And I know that last year at the start of the year, um, him and his wife moved to Athens from where they previously, they'd been in Greece before, but they moved to Athens so they could be closer to a hospital because he was in and out of hospitals all the time. Yeah, I think every every time I heard about Constantine, I think in my entire life, it was because he was in hospital. <laughs> I was just like expecting it. And I feel like the last time we, well, not we personally saw it, but he was seen in public. He was kind of on like in a wheelchair and on supplementary oxygen. So it, it yeah, I kind of, I did expect it. I kind of did expect him to die last year. And when he didn't, I was like, right, get another one. It was similar to the Queen's process in that, like, there was an announcement before the death announcement. So um, he was hospitalised originally, I think, on the 9th of January. And they said he was in a quote unquote serious but stable condition. Um, But I think his family kind of rallied around him and they were going to the churches and lighting candles for him. So people kind of expected that he was dying. But then you had other people who were like, no, no, you know, um, and that they always go to Greece at this time of year. And it was just that that just coincidental. And uh, and then he died. And we know a little bit about the funeral. So the funeral hasn't happened. It's happening tomorrow, I think. Yes. The 16th of January. 16th of January. So the day after we record this. Um, But I do know that there was a, a discussion in Greece about the kind of appropriate level of funeral to have for him. And I think when we talk about the history of the Greek monarchy and how he plays into it, it kind of, it will make sense why they had to have this discussion. And they kind of landed on, there's going to be no state funeral. Um, He would be buried as a private citizen at Tatoi Palace. Tatoi? I don't know how you pronounce it. That's how I would call it, Tatoi. The funeral will happen at the Metropolitan Cathedral of Athens. The government's going to send a representative. Um, but there's been conversations. Apparently the family had kind of asked for a state funeral and that they'd wanted it to be bigger. And there was some upset on social media that has meant that they've had to do some kind of lying in state, essentially, where so where his body is laid out and people can go and visit it or his coffin is laid out. Um, and they had they had initially said that's not going to happen at all. But now they've kind of given like three or four hours where people can do it. There aren't that many... Um... Uh, uh, abolished monarchies where the current head of the family 
was a monarch in their own lifetime a lot of them are just like descended um and of the ones are many of them weren't quite as controversial <laughs> as Constantine was so it was a weird situation where as a country Greece would probably like and also Greece aren't in like a brilliant economic state so they've not got loads of money just to shell out on a state funeral but also he was a past leader for quite a few years and there were people that would have wanted him to have it um so yeah they've done it they've got a weird kind of like they're not doing anything at all and then on the funeral day they're going to do a bit of lying in state they'll have a procession he's going to fly somewhere it's like everything that happened for the queen across about three weeks is happening in a day for <laughs> Constantine. Yeah, and like the initial initially they sent the they were sent the government, the Greek government was sending the Minister for Culture, who is I mean, I don't know if it's the same in Greece as it is in the UK, but that's kind of like a fairly low down position. But that now they've kind of had to upgrade that. So I think the deputy prime minister is going. Um, so like it definitely seems like the Greek state were like, no, he's not gonna get a special funeral, he's just an ordinary guy, and we'll send some random person, we'll send Bill because you know he's not doing anything else. Uh, and then everyone was like, oh, maybe you should do a bit more because he was king. He was like you said, he'd been ill for quite a while. You would have assumed they'd put some kind of plan in place or at least like contingency plans. Like this is our dream plan, which is to do nothing. But if we have to do something, these are our options. But instead they kind of were like, what? No, people aren't OK with us doing nothing. <laughs> what are we going to do? It's like, you'll go. I'm not going. You have to go. Send him. I don't know. And a part of it maybe is and the fact that they kind of had to elevate it is that there's a surprisingly strong royal contingent the monarchs from Spain from Denmark from the Netherlands Luxembourg uh Sweden and so I wonder if um you know the fact that this isn't just a funeral of a private citizen but it's also a funeral that's going to be attended by a lot of European heads, heads of state is also where they've kind of been like okay maybe we should send somebody to not make our government look good to these people I saw a few um, Greek newspapers being like there was a bit of sort of panic when they suddenly realised that they were going to have like 20 heads of state just rock up in Athens. But and there wouldn't be any like extra security for them or anything. So <laughs> I imagine someone somewhere panicked and was like, hang on, this is a disaster waiting to happen. Got just let like all the world's monarchy rock up and the world's abolished monarchy rock up and just not do anything about it. I was really surprised, actually. Like I expected... Um... Maybe uh, particularly the sort of former monarchs um, like Beatrix and Albert and Juan Carlos and the ones who are related to Constantine, like the Spanish and the the Danish royal families. Uh, I mean, they're all related to a degree, but like the ones who are closely related. Uh, Charles's first cousin recently died, the Margrave of somewhere in Germany. Um, And I don't think any Brits went. And that's Charles's (laughs) first cousin. Just because they're family, these are also very busy people. And funerals happen with very short notice. And this is a controversial funeral. So I personally was surprised to see the level of attendance. Yeah, maybe like Constantine was just like a really nice guy. And they yeah, really yeah. liked him when he went to visit them. And they were like, oh, we got to go and say bye to Uncle Constantine. Yeah. <laughs> Uncle Carney. But yeah. I, I... I think, yeah, to understand why the funeral is controversial, to understand Constantine as a person, we kind of have to look at the history of the Greek monarchy. And I'm going to start at the top. Before I did this episode, what I knew about Greek history or Greek monarchy history, you know, could fit on the back of a postage stamp. I knew 
very, very, I knew enough to sound interesting at a dinner party. I think there will be people who will listen and say, that's not correct. And I'm totally willing to accept that. Please let me know. I, I, I will be honest. My knowledge of the Greek royal family was that it was controversial and Philip was involved. Yes. Um, Philip is far less involved than, you, than I thought he was. That is just, I'm going to put that one out there. Doesn't really come up. And I did do all my research on Friday night, but I did absolutely love it. I have fallen completely obsessed with the controversies of the Greek royal family. I've divided things into sort of stages. Greece was part of various empires for quite a while. And I think the last empire it was part of was the Ottoman Empire. And then in 1832, for various reasons that I'm not going to get into, the UK, France and Russia, the top three meddlers um, of Europe, had a meeting and created an agreement which essentially formalized Greece as an independent state and gave them the power to select the head of state. Who they went with was some random dude, as far as I can tell, called Otto, who was the younger son of King Ludwig of Bavaria. And he was chosen because the Bavarians seemed like a fairly neutral group of people to pick at the time. Uh, no Greeks were consulted. He wasn't Greek. Um, and somehow, despite all of that, he did manage to hold on to the throne for 30 years. But, um, you know, he it was a really just it was classic Britain, France and Russian behavior of just meddling and being like, we'll, we'll pick this random guy from Bavaria. The, the fact the Greek royal Greek monarchy started in almost like pure chaos really kind of sets the scene because they came out of their sort of independence battle with the Ottoman Empire um, as as victors and put in like a temporary head of state and they were all set themselves up and they were a republic and then their first head of state was assassinated um, within a year so, <laughs> which is a great start um, which is why then it, I think Britain and France and Russia were like don't worry guys we are gonna sort this out for you we will pick you a monarch because monarchies we've all had them they go so well in all of our countries Definitely no worry about monarchies going wrong in France or Russia. Um, <laughs> Famous last words. And then, so obviously then we just ended up picking this random guy called Otto. Um, and he kind of was initially a bit of like a figurehead. And then he took over as sort of absolute monarch. And then my favourite quote I read in my entire notes was some guy who was like, um, Otto was not ruthless enough to be feared, competent enough to be respected, or compassionate enough to be loved. Oh, like harsh. Um, so we kind of had sort of two mini revolutions. So there was the first one, which is when they were like, "Look, you cannot just be in charge. You're really bad at it. We're going to give you a prime minister." Um, to kind of set, sort of calm it all down a bit. So that was the Greeks' first kind of like, "Hang on, hang on. We're being ruled by this German guy. We want to make some decisions." And then they had another revolution in. Uh, 1862 I believe um, and uh, it ended up with Otto fleeing to Bavaria on a British warship which I was like oh, of course the Britons are involved yeah of course we're involved um, always so yeah I think like the, the very beginning of the, the Greek monarchy started with assassinations two revolutions and people being like nah thanks don't really want to be monarch so that's just the first king like the <laughs> It's a really bad start. So after he was kind of ousted, um, the various people who, um, you know, Britain, France and Russia, um, who liked to meddle, uh, 
they kind of had to they had to find somebody else essentially who was going to take over that role so they had a kind of public vote i think maybe they'd learned from the last time that um imposing somebody onto a country who has no connections to it maybe isn't a great way of doing things um and so they did have a vote but 95 percent of the vote was um prince alfred who was british and so under the agreement of 1832, which has been 30 years earlier, he was not eligible. It would have thrown the balance of power of Europe out to have a British person take the throne of Greece. So even though he got 95% of the vote, he um, did, didn't, he wasn't eligible. Yeah, they didn't do the vote very well because it was a write-in ballot. So people just wrote, everyone's like, we just really want Prince Alfred, so we're writing him in. And then everyone's like, you can't do that. Um, I remember watching an episode of QI and they said that there was one vote for King Otto. Um, there was. And, but I just like the idea that like he he convinced somebody to be like, write, me, write my name. <laughs> I just loved looking at the names that had been written in because you've got like this massive selection of like proper people who went on to be like the emperor of Russia and the emperor of other countries and the king of Spain. And then they were people like someone just put Republic and someone just put a French prince and I was like, someone wrote England, Russia, France. Like that's not a person. That's just three other countries. Who are you voting for here? Uh, democracy <laughs> at work. Um, <laughs> I mean, the one that ended up winning um, was uh, Prince William of Denmark, the second son of King Christian the ninth. So he was not one of those three big powers. He was fairly neutral. He did, as far as I can tell, only receive six votes. <laughs> Yeah, really overwhelming number of votes. So, uh, you know, the first guy who got put, Otto, was kind of put in position because he he was convenient for people who were not Greek. The Greeks had no say in it. Second time around, they were like, we're going to right the wrongs of last time. We're going to give the Greek people a say in it. But the person they ended up choosing was chosen by six Greek people. Essentially, everyone they went to either said no, like, no thanks or couldn't do it or wasn't actually a person like a king is not a person of Greek I just want to point that one out there got to say a king and hope for the best um so the fact they had to go to the 18th person on their list before they could find a monarch once again is not really going in strong for the uh Greek monarchy that's it for anyone who's interested that is where the connection between the Greek and the Danish royal family comes from there is a more modern connection as well but the uh Greek royal family are also prince and princess of Denmark and that comes from this connection to King, to King Christian the Ninth all the way back in the 19th century. You can see the foundation, as we've kind of said, you can see the foundations of a crisis in this situation because I think monarchies tend to have less success if they are more modern. So we've had Britain for a thousand, you know, in various, it's, it was obviously Scotland and then England, but we've had a formal monarchy for like a thousand years and before that we had kind of smaller tribal areas that had their own monarchies and it's grown and evolved and except from like a very brief period of time it's been fairly consistent the whole way through and so getting rid of a monarchy that's existed for a thousand years feels like quite a big undertaking getting rid of a monarchy that's existed for at that point you know 30 years that doesn't doesn't really seem as as significant you know and if you i think if you look at like belgium is a relatively new monarchy and is not the most popular spain is obviously an old monarchy but they brought it back in fairly recently um they're they're having a bit of a struggle i think it's just a trend that it's more difficult to sustain a monarchy if they're introduced in a you know in sort of modern history yeah and i think greece has 
from its very early stages been a country that has been sort of in and out of wars it's never been a really stable political country it's always had these kind of fluctuations so on one hand you can see how they sort of snuck a monarchy in because it was very unstable particularly when it had sort of just come out of being part of the ottoman empire but you can also see how that would have made it really hard for a monarchy to sort of get a steady footing because they were used to just swap sort of chopping and changing their leaders all the time but in a very dramatic way and I think so I've got I I have a feeling you've got a lot more in your notes because I've gone (laughs) things were mostly chill from 1862 to till 1924 and the monarchy was deposed again now I think that was that period is shorter than the queen's reign uh to put it into context um of how long they managed to hold on after the first time they'd been overthrown um (laughs) before they were overthrown again um but when I say things were mostly chill all I mean by that is that they were on the throne but as far as I'm aware, <laughs> things were not actually that chill. I just didn't have the brain capacity to write all of the assassination attempts and uh, controversies for all of those monarchs in that 60-year period. Whereas I did. Whereas you did, yeah. <laughs> um, so give us a potted history. So Prince Wilhelm, Prince William of Denmark, took the sort of regal name of George. So he was King George I of Greece. My note is he's an all-round good egg. Like, he did a lot of good for... Greece as a country he sort of set things off quite well he sorted out the economy sorted out education he tried really hard to be Greek didn't he yeah he he spoke Greek he took Greek lessons he was always wandering around Greece like just by himself to meet people uh during his reign they had the first Balkan war kickoff which is um a series of wars um that sort of have happened between Greece um and the countries surrounding them so like Bulgaria Romania Cyprus that kind of selection of countries and he was very involved in that as kind of as a someone sort of supporting the soldiers his children fought in it as soldiers so everyone's like oh good old George is involved he's part of us um and the first Balkan war they did go on and win so it was all very positive yeah and then George was living as living his best life and thought you know what I'll abdicate on my 50th anniversary my 50th jubilee and let my son Constantine I take over and so he was due to abdicate on October 1913 which would have been the 50 year anniversary but sadly did not make it because he got assassinated in March of that year by <laughs> by a guy who at some point fell out of a window why do why do assassins <laughs> always push people out of windows <laughs> just, like, just don't go near any windows guys you just get shoved out by assassins um but they, it was very kind of, no one quite knew why, because Alexandros, who was the the, the person who killed um, George I, who shot him in the chest while he was just walking around talking to people with no security, didn't say it was for any kind of political reason. He was just kind of doing it. And there were lots of rumours about him being attached to various groups in sort of the Greek political sphere or from other countries. Um, but nothing was ever proven. And then he got shoved out a window. So... He was probably linked to someone with a power to push around a window, but there's we, there's no sort of general consensus above the fact that he was probably the one king they didn't need to assassinate because he seemed quite nice. Yeah, and he was leaving. Um, <laughs> yeah, he was going anyway. Um, but then his son, King Constantine I, took over, and he initially was like the golden child of Greece because he'd been fighting in the Balkan War. They beat 
the sort of Bulgaria, they they come victorious in this sort of section, and everyone's like Constantine did that because he'd been a frontline fighter. Um, and obviously at this point we're in 1913. So in the next year is 1914, where World War One starts. And uh, King Constantine the First was married to Sophia of Prussia, who is the sister of Kaiser Wilhelm of ah. Germany. He also did his studies in Germany. So he was viewed as a German sympathizer and Greece did not really get involved in the war. So people kept being like, "Ooh, come help us, Greece, come and support us. And Constantine was like, no, thanks. So the Greek people were like, hang on, you, Mr. Mr. German, German supporter, you Mr. German over there. <laughs> it wasn't even the German, we had a German one, like this one wasn't, but yeah. still, we're going to blame him anyway. <laughs> Um, so he didn't join the war at all um, and he was kind of being supported by Russia Russia were like he doesn't have to join the war guys let him do his thing um, but you know the Greeks were getting annoyed with him Britain and France were getting annoyed with him you know the allied countries were annoyed with him Germany was also annoyed with him because every time Kaiser Wilhelm came in from was like oh do you want to help he was like no I'm just not part of this yeah. not, part of <laughs> not to like drop in a revolution really casually but during World War One, the Russian Revolution happened, the March Revolution, which knocked out the Russian monarchy. So suddenly, George the First, not George I, Constantine the First, lost his big ally of Russia because they were having minor crisis of their own. So Constantine fled German, not German, fled Greece in 1917 because everyone was getting really angry with him, with his oldest child. But he left his second son to be the new king, so King Alexander, except he lived under palace arrest and essentially didn't do anything. And he was just there. So the military and the rulers of Greece, the the uh, politicians and military could be like, look, we've not overthrown the monarchy. There's Alexander the king. He's in charge. Just we happen to make all the decisions and he lives in a palace. Um, and he did absolutely nothing but under his reign of a grand total of three years things seemed to go quite well because the war ended they got a bit more territory they started to take over a few little bits around them as all good European countries did in the 1900s um and it all seemed to be going quite well but then poor Alexander got bitten by a monkey and died of sepsis was the monkey an assassin though <laughs> yeah probably I'm putting this monkey down on our list of assassinated monarchs he's taken them out don't yeah. know what happened to the monkey afterwards did it fall out of a window? <laughs> <laughs> I have no evidence. <laughs> so yes, after Alexander got offed by a monkey, we had Constantine the Return, um, where essentially everyone was like, oh no, what are we going to do? Shall And the people in charge, the politicians and the military were like, let's do a little vote. Shall we, you know, just keep us? Shall we be in charge? And 99% of the votes were like, we want Constantine. Um which I think was a shock to everyone, including Turkey, Britain and France, who at this point had fully gone off the idea of a Greek monarchy. Um, and Constantine came back, except where he had been initially the sort of war hero, he started another war and was like, great, we'll take over some more places. And in the end, lost a whole bunch of Greek land, so had to abdicate. And it was this kind of 1922 period, which is where, where Philip does pop in, because Philip's brother, no, no, not Philip's father, that was Constantine's brother. So this military failure is kind of what kicked off Philip being in a basket. 
which is irrelevant to the rest of the story, but that's where he pops up. Yeah, because I always wondered when he was yeah. in a basket, because he wouldn't have been in a basket when Constantine, it would have been a blooming big basket if it had been when Constantine <laughs> was, was, he would have already been married to the Queen, why would he have been in a basket in Greece? That's a great rundown, but I think the end of it was that Greece decided not to have a monarchy for a little bit again. Yeah, so they, they'd got rid of Constantine, well he, he'd got rid of himself, he abdicated, and they put his son, George II, in. Um, and he had a he was married to a Romanian princess, a Princess Elizabeth of Romania. And within a year of becoming king, he fled to Romania because the royals, the pro-royal people were trying to do a coup to support him. And it went really badly wrong to the extent that the monarchy had to flee. And then in 1924, like you said, they ousted them. The Greeks were like, you know what, this is really not working out. We've had God knows how many monarchs the last few years. Half of them are dead. The other half are idiots. <laughs> We're getting Ravana Republic. That so they this was from um 1924 until 1935, I believe. I when I so I start off by looking at Wikipedia for my notes, and I know there's gonna be people who are like, oh my goodness, looking at Wikipedia. But it's a good place because it sources its information. So you can find all the articles in the source section and go and read those. Um, I'm not just looking looking at anything on Wikipedia and believing it before anybody comes for me. But it did create one of my favourite lines on Wikipedia ever, which is um, between 1924 and 1935, Greece had 23 changes of government, a dictatorship and 13 coup d'etat. <laughs> well, they were busy. Yeah, even without a monarchy, Greece was just having a messy time for those 11 years. Um, so, you know, I really enjoyed that. You know, it seemed like it, whether you had a monarchy or not, it was just chaotic at that point in time. Um, after, uh, you know, those sort of nine years of chaos, obviously, the Greeks voted again. They vote a lot over in Greece uh, and they decided to bring the monarchy back. I heard that there was a, a minor threat of violence if they did not vote for a monarchy. Well, there you go. So, then. I mean, I mean, that might have had a minor impact on the votes. Just yeah. A TV yeah. Threat. These this was kind of a very long period of like teething problems of like it seems like they aren't really sure how they want the country to run at this point they try a monarchy they screw it up they try not having a monarchy that's not very stable and you know good either we've got 13 coup d'etat and uh, you know all these things um so it's just like it's just like it can't settle at this point in history yeah they were definitely going for like full full chaos mode at this point and if you think um, and 1935 is 103 years after they first chose Prince Otto to be on the throne. And the amount of different leaders and styles of sort of government they'd had in those 103 years is, I mean, it's quite impressive to get through that many. But it's also must have been incredibly hard to have any kind of normal life within Greece when things were changing so quickly all the time. Love the chaos. Which is a Greek word, I think, so that's appropriate. Uh, Constantine's grandfather, George II, the one that fled to Romania, um, he'd, he had fallen out with his wife, Princess Elizabeth, at this point, because he'd fled Romania because it was really boring and moved to London and became the head of the Freemasons during the oh. Republic era. Um, so he was just living his best life. He came back and was like, right, that was so boring before. I'm going to do it a new way. And this is what I like to call Greece, the dictator era. And <laughs> when George II decided to abolish, he well, essentially he had a whole bunch of different people in the position of prime minister trying to sort of make decisions and take control. And within a year, 
of him being in, on the throne again. Um, Wikipedia told me everyone, well, a lot of political leaders died in suspicious circumstances. Did they fall out of windows? <laughs> tell me what they, <laughs> no one specified what these circumstances were. Maybe they all just got the flu and died. Bitten by monkey assassins. There have been a bit of monkey assassination going on. Yeah. Um, so in 1936, with his sort of new prime minister buddy, um, they decided to do, you know, all your classic fun things like get rid of parliament, get rid of all the political parties, abolish the constitution. Um, and they were just like, great, we are now in control. No one can get rid of us. We're the boss. And they had the kind of dictator era, as I've been, as I've named it. Um, and it was not very pleasant. I'm sure the people of Greece were not a big fan of said era of their life. And it kind of remained in what I'm going to say as dictator era until, well, through World War II, which is the next kind of big European thing that happened and also had a really big impact on Greece itself because Greece was invaded by Germany. This is where our Constantine comes in. Much as Greece itself has been marked by chaos pretty much from the beginning of what we've, you know, of this, the part of history we're talking about, Constantine's life was also marked by chaos pretty much from the beginning. So he was born in June of 1940. And so this was only, what, five years after the monarchy had been reinstated. Before he even had his first birthday, there was the Nazi invasion of Greece and the family had to flee and they spent five years in various places, I think mostly in Africa. Um, so, you know, that first sort of five years of his life, five, five six years, was incredibly chaotic it actually kind of reminded me a lot of we talked about king harold in episode 33 and how he was kind of born right into the midst of um the the war and or around the time of the war and he was evacuated with his family um i think you know so you know it, it reminded me of that in a little bit i think it's different because when when harold came back to norway he had a stable country to come back to that liked the monarchy that was not quite the situation in Greece. Um, but, you know, I, I I think it's interesting to think about how he spent his formative years at kind of the, the culmination of about 100 years of constant instability and conflict for Greece. Yeah, and for the whole of Europe as well, because, yeah. you know, at this point, his the extended Greek family had all been banished from Greece and hadn't returned. Um, the whole of Europe was in chaos. So they couldn't really stay there. They were kind of, they flitted around a little bit through, you know, like the UK and places like that. And then, like you said, fled to Africa. We, I mentioned the Russian revolution happened in sort of March, 1917, but th I think there was definitely for Greece more than the other monarchies, that kind of worry of they were the least stable monarchy mm -hmm. really at that point. And the last unstable monarchy to go in a world war did not go quietly. Yes. So <laughs> It's also not a pleasant time for them all. So I, I don't think that could have was a really like they probably had that on their mind during this whole kind of uh oh we're a really unstable monarchy during the war and mm -hmm. people don't like us we're getting out. I mean all I think about what the adults in his life must have been like when he was a child of like constantly living with this fear that they were going to be pushed out of a window or bitten by a monkey. Um, you know that <laughs> constantly like trying to keep control but not doing a very good job of it while there was a war going on while you're fleeing for your life you know like that that's bound to impact you as a person um impact how you reign yeah and I think the even in the kind of immediate aftermath of the war 
it did when when it should have been stable when everyone should have been able to sort of go home and get settled they couldn't because um during the greek royal family's um escape from greece they'd kind of done a regency which essentially the greeks had just put in a republican government um, <laughs> and then in 1946 they had done an election and a very pro-monarchy group was instated as sort of leaders so they did another referendum on the monarchy and they voted to keep George only by 68% this time rather than the 98% last time um, but even the pro-monarchy people were like oh yeah this was definitely corrupt we've only won this because we've cheated like at the time they were straight up saying it <laughs> so the the you know Constantine and George and his father and all these people returned to Greece within uh, on the 26th September 1946 so around a year after the war ended um, and by all by all rights should have had a nice calm few years but George II died on April the 1st 1947 and when it was announced everyone thought it was an April Fool's prank and Paul Constantine's father Philip's cousin um, took over he became the the king of Greece <laughs> I think there's also there was a Greek there was a civil war in Greece. Yeah. Um immediately after the the World War up until about 1949. Um so you know generally speaking they when they came back as you know other countries who had exiled or who had had monarchs who had left for various reasons for security reasons when they came back they were kind of warmly greeted and their focus was on pulling the country together and um, a lot of them had had maybe maybe the children had been sent abroad, but one of the adults had stayed around and kept the country going during the war. So there was there was actually quite a lot of like, I mean, obviously not in some countries, but in a lot of countries that had a monarchy for a long time. Anyway, there was kind of a feeling of uh, celebration about the monarchy and um, there was a lot of positivity. Greece was going through a civil war so it didn't really have time to you know think about um the, the monarchy and um kind of have that period of stability and kind of post-war pro-monarchy like the other countries did um so like even when he was coming back to his country after he'd spent his early childhood living abroad he was coming back to a country that was still at war <laughs> for another four years if you think about the first 10 years of Constantine's life was war he he essentially grew up in war whether it was world war ii and whether his whole country fled in fear for their lives or the greek civil war when he went back to greece his granddad died his dad became king and you know he it wouldn't have been a i mean fair play to uh, to king paul for keeping his family in the country because after the very gentle relationship of the Greek royal family and Greece I probably would have sent my kids far away during a period where there was the chance of a revolution where my head was going to get chopped off I I wouldn't be like get out of there but you know he did he's they all stayed and um Constantine and his you know his sisters so his sisters are Sophia of Greece uh, Sophia of Greece who became Queen Sophia of Spain and Princess Irene of Greece um sort of would have been um, very aware, even at that young age, of the civil war and the impact that was having on them as a family and their role in the country. Um, and I've also got to hear about his sort of his marriage. I mean, yes. that happened after he took the throne, but he he married in um, Mark. Uh, well, 
he took the throne and he married in 1964 to uh, Queen Anne-Marie, who is the sister of the current Queen of Denmark, Margrethe. And I did just have a note here. This is very off topic because this whole thing has been about like Greece, Greek political uh, machinations and uh, infighting and all this thing. This is just very a personal thing. But they married when she was 18 and he was uh, 23. Um, but apparently, very creepily, he first proposed to her when he was 21 and she was 15. Ooh, creepy, creepy, oh, no? This is the that's not right. No, and this is the 1960s. I actually, the things I do for this podcast, I was looking up like the average age of marriage in Greece um, over the decades. <laughs> and I think 15 was not even, like in the 1960s, that was not a normal age to get married. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Constantine. Because I, I feel like I've seen the story a lot recently, the one where he proposed and then the Danish royal family, so Margarita's father was like, um, or Margarita or the, someone in the Danish were like, no, um, not until she's 18. Yes, that was, he was like, Yeah. So I feel like I've heard that story recently, but and it makes sense to be Constantine, but good amount of you. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure if I skipped the end of Constantine's father's reign or had you already got up to that point? Oh, yeah, he had a really boring reign and he had stomach cancer and died oh the only exciting thing about that was at some point Constantine himself went on like a journey to find a religious icon to oh. cure his dad as like a miracle from God it didn't work <laughs> um for some reason <laughs> so Constantine did become king but yeah he did at one point go off like on an Indiana Jones quest to try and find something to mend his dad from God um sadly did not work <laughs> if he wanted power over life and death he should have started a podcast so yeah but I mean so he took the throne at the age of 23 um which you know he was very very young man who had lived a life of a lot of instability and I think it's undis- undeniable whether, whether you're a monarchist or not to say that he was not equipped for what he was taking on like Greece was still reeling from the war from the civil war and it had also, you know, the, this is never a good sign. It had become a country of great interest to the United States. I think at that point in time, when, when Constantine became king, Greece was kind of seen as um, a battleground between Europe and Russia because of where it's located. And so during like the Cold War era for the US, having Greece on their side was seen as sort of something that would, you know, not lend support to the communists. It was all about the communists. It would be difficult for even the strongest monarch to be able to combat the um, meddling of the CIA. For, you know, at 23 to take the throne when you're not only kind of sitting on 100 years of major political instability and also being used as a pawn in the biggest sort of war event happening at the time. But also, I think within Greece itself, he was kind of... He was really given a bad footing, but there was obviously people being like, oh, at least Constantine II and we hate him because we hate the monarchy. But then the pro-monarchy groups were like, no, he's Constantine Thirteenth, and we're going to link him back to the ancient kings of Greece, which it's really hard to balance being in a particular country where there is this real divide over whether or not there should be a monarchy to balance being a modern monarch for the people, for the people who want that, because that's how you're going to sort of survive and also being this ancient godly figure or the pro-monarchist who was supporting you anyway and I think not to sound like a Constantine's dad or anything but he did 
he he was not really given like a good starting point. He really came in on the back foot as being monarch. Greece had elected a centre-left government. So we're not talking communist, but we're talking centre-left. Under the Prime Minister Papandreou. Papandreou? Sounds Greek. (laughs) Um, And Constantine, being young and apparently very stupid, um, and possibly also, I think, encouraged by some of the people around him, like his mother, Queen Frederica, was supposed to be very formidable and interfered in a lot of things and is a very controversial figure in Greece. But, you know, being being young and easily influenced, he kind of threw his weight around a lot with the new prime minister. And, you know, there's been talk of like the, the queen not having a good relationship with Margaret Thatcher, but apparently it got to the point in Greece where um, they weren't even communicating with one another. Like they, if they, if they sent each other a letter or called each other or whatever, that they, they would get no response. They weren't talking to each other at all, him and the prime minister. And that's like, that's kind of a key part of being a monarch is being able to be in regular communication with the prime minister to know what's actually going on in the country. So that's very early on a total breakdown in the main part of Constantine's job. He was coming after within sort of people's lifetimes, only, you know, 30 years earlier, Greece was in a royal dictatorship, like, you know, in an absolute monarchy. So it wasn't like it'd been years since they'd had a monarch go a bit power hungry it had been quite recently and hadn't gone well for them so I mean it wasn't the smartest move if anyone's ever made Constantine but you know there was a thing that went on and I'm not going to get into it because I don't really know the detail but there was something that happened and basically Papandreou decided that he would take over the defense ministry and Constantine refused and so Papandreou resigned and at the meeting where the sort of resignation was accepted, Constantine had apparently handpicked his successor who was waiting in the room next door. <laughs> um, and so, like, that's not outside of the, you know, constitutionally, the king of Greece at the time had the power to pick whoever he wanted as prime minister, um, which I think is, you know, the same as a lot of monarchies. They don't do it, but they can do it. Um, so technically, he may not have been overstepping the bounds, but I think people felt like, the only reason he turned down Papandreou's decision to be the defense minister was because he wanted to get him to resign. And he, the whole, you know, he had his replacement in mind. The whole point for him had been trying to push the elected prime minister to resign. And so that's, that started to cause a lot of controversy at this point in time, because people thought that he was essentially meddling a bit. Meddling is the theme of this. Don't meddle. It doesn't go well. Um, yeah, right from the yeah. start, someone's been meddling. Someone's been meddling. Um, and so, yeah, that was very unpopular. And like the replacement that he picked, it he picked last um, lasted a month because the government wouldn't back him. Um, and so, and Constantine kept trying over and over and over again to have somebody um, replace that guy. And you know, he, picking all of his favorites, his royalists, and none of them ever got support from the government. Um, so it was again chaotic. Yeah, it was it was definitely, I think, not a not a not a positive time to be in. And I think if you think compare it to that period of the, the when George II was um exiled and the monarchy was abolished that time, and they had all those sort of changes in government. Mm-hmm. It's not quite the same because they weren't changing the whole government, but it's a very similar period of political instability in a very short period of time where there just happens to be a king who's causing the political instability. Yeah, yeah. And like, if you look at other monarchies, there's kind of um, 
there's standing conventions of like this is the way that this is the limit of our power and it's kind of been that way for a while or it is clearly outlined in the constitution what they can and can't do and you know i think greece still hadn't really found what they wanted the monarchy to be or how they wanted the country to be governed and so um i'm trying to be sympathetic to constantine here a little bit um because i'm not throughout most of this but um you know there was there were questions about like what is the 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 point of having this monarch and uh, what is the limit of their power and how you know they he doesn't have the long-standing convention of stability and popularity and all those things to draw from of kind of looking back and saying oh well this is what the monarch did 200 years ago and so i can do something similar he didn't really have that yeah because i wasn't a monarch 200 years ago (laughs) yeah exactly and then the ones that had come after them had been unpopular and assassinated or had been um absolute monarchs or you know it it, it was all it was just a very it's very difficult when you don't have any precedence to draw from so this was a, a period of chaos because no matter what he did Constantine couldn't seem to find anybody who would command the support of the government so they wouldn't be able to get any laws passed or do any business basically um there was the possibility that Papandreou would come back but I think that at this point in time he wouldn't have the his support had been diluted slightly so he probably would have had to ally with the communists in order to be able to hold power. And that was not a possibility that a lot of people wanted. So seeing the kind of the chaos that was going on and seeing a gap, you know, a a weakness that they could exploit, there was a military coup. Yeah, and I feel like it's worth mentioning this military dictatorship was in 1967 and he only came to the throne in 1964. So all of this chaos up until this point took place within three years. So just to, just to really embed how manic this sort of period of Greek history was, if you if you imagine it from the end of World War Two, which was only twenty two years earlier, they'd had a civil war. They were on their third monarch, um, multiple corrupt elections, multiple prime ministers, and now they were having a military dictatorship take over with a very weak monarch trying to battle them. well trying to battle them is a really over estimation of what he did which was essentially nothing yeah so this is i think this is the the defining act of constantine's reign for a lot of greek people today and a lot of other people um he basically they turned up at the palace and um some people did ask constantine at that point to fight back there was people who offered military support from other parts of the military that were not part of this coup um and people who offered to help and he basically was like nah um and he kind of the way it's perceived by a lot of greek people today is that he essentially just opened the doors for this military dictatorship um he claimed since then that he had no choice that he was under threat that they had tanks around the palace and one of my favorite things is that he said that um he showed his displeasure by not smiling throughout the the photo call and the photo shoot when he was signing all of these decrees and laying them all in but none of the dictatorship guys were smiling either so he just looked like one of them (laughs) they were all just really unhappy they had to have this dictatorship and they were all doing it anyway but they were just gonna be like oh i'm gonna frown while i'm signing (laughs) a lot of people don't really buy into that and i think for many greek people even today he will always be the man who his in intrigue and you know his plotting drove out Papandreou and ushered in a dictatorship instead and so I think to a lot of people that's how he'll always be thought of if you I don't want to you know necessarily compare him to another monarch but if you think about when 
Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth II died. And a lot of people were like, you know, I'm not sad because she represented, you know, yeah. a the monarchy, which has done all these horrible things. And some of these things happened during her reign. And even if she wasn't involved, Constantine was involved in some of the horrible things that happened. Even if he didn't organise a military coup himself, he, you know, to, whether it was willingly or not, was the person who said, yep, I'll sign the forms to come on in and take over. So he, and it, you know, 67 is fairly recent history in the grand scheme of things. Like (laughs) both my parents were alive at that point, you know, it's not, not years and years ago. So it's, it's a fairly memorable military coup in a European monarchy country, which are fairly rare. You know, they tend, we have had military coups, but not that many. Yeah. Like I, um, none of my relatives remember um, Oliver Cromwell or the Interregnum or, you know, <laughs> none of them can tell me about how difficult it was to whether the monarchy was a good thing in Charles the first and uh, Charles the second's era or whether Oliver Cromwell was, be- you know, I don't, there's no personal memory attached to that. Whereas if you were a Greek person, you probably either remember this time or you have a parent or grandparent who remembers this time. And, you know, I can imagine when Constantine comes on the TV, there's probably like, ugh, him, he gave us the dictatorship, uh, which was horrible. You know, dictatorships are not often very nice, but it was, you know, (laughs) crackdowns on press freedom. There was, uh, like any military junta, there was torture and um, uh, oppression of the people. So a lot of people blame him for that because they think that he should have mounted a stronger defence. And that because it was such recent history, there will be people who remember that or who, who whose lives have been impacted by the fallout of that dictatorship. And so it's a it's a personal issue to a lot of Greek people that like this is recent. This happened recently. Yeah. And I think, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the military coup. He before, you know, while people were struggling, he went to with his family to the sort of the north of Greece mm. where they had a lot more support. I don't, it was like Thakios, Thakios, I can't speak Greek. I'm very sorry to Greek people. Um, and was like, oh, I've got such a good idea. Yeah. Now I'm in this tiny land where all these people support me um, because I'm so beloved. I'm just going to fight back from here and live my best life as like, he's kind of tried in a really weird way, tried to set up like he was going to be the king of this one place in Greece and maybe take over the rest at some point. Wasn't really sure he was going to, sort of just rule this land and surprisingly unsurprisingly the military dictatorship went yeah no that's not gonna happen yes I mean to give him credit again he although he didn't do anything um except frown uh when they initially came (laughs) in he he did try to launch a counter coup uh I'll call it later on that year and he just did a really bad job of it so like they were very popular in this part of the north and he thought he'd be able to rally the troops literally um to support him and to be able to kind of take back control by using some of the military who were based in the north of greece and might be more allied um, allied to him but i think a few things happened um people but essentially the the military dictatorship they were part of the military they knew that's what he was going to do they knew that was the plan and so um they sent a lot of the soldiers away outside of Greece. So they weren't in the north anymore. They weren't near Constantine. They arrested some of the leaders who they thought might be sympathetic to him. And so initially what he had been like his his plan to fight back and get back control of the country melted away within like a couple of days. Yeah. And I think the the fact that after the kind of the coup failed, 
the family fled Greece. They went to Italy at the end of 1967. It's kind of a sign because if he was that, I mean, I'm sure there was there was threats to his life and his family's life, it being the end of a um, monarchy in a turbulent country. There always are. But also if he was that determined to protect the people, he probably wouldn't have decided Italy was the place to do it from. <laughs> yeah. And there was a lot of things about, you know, a lot of times when monarchs are exiled or if they had to flee because of like the world wars that happened to quite a lot of monarchs, they would set up a government in exile. Um, and they would essentially have a group of people around them and they would issue public statements or uh, they would criticize what was going on in their country, even though they couldn't physically be there and they would still be kind of plotting in the background. And Constantine didn't do that. And so not only did he flee the country, but he also then didn't really seem to put up any fight whatsoever. Uh, he just kind of let things happen, as far as I can tell. Um, which, you know, this it didn't last very long, the military junta, less than a decade, but still, like, it had a big impact on people. Yeah, when he was in Italy, I, he gave one statement. I, did, I, was say, I remember, I did not, I was not there. <laughs> no, you were not born. <laughs> he, did, he did give a statement where he was like, well, I am still the king of Greece and I will be until they decide to get rid of the king of Greece. And he would kind of deal with him, well, that's my job, but he didn't do anything yeah. to be the king of Greece. It's a, you know, it's like if I turned around today, I was like, well, I'm the queen of, I don't know, Germany. Like, well done. I can say that, doesn't mean I am. <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. It doesn't at all. You know, I didn't want to, again, get into the deep history of the military junta, but um, there was a a vote initially to get rid of the monarchy and it overwhelmingly passed like 90 something percent of the vote. But um, it was also believed that that was not a fair vote. Um, and so they had another one after the military junta fell in 1974 um, and 69 percent of people voted to remain a republic. And so from that point on, Constantine was a king in exile for the rest of his life, pretty much. Yes. Um, and they did, they officially stripped them of all their titles and honours. So the King of Greece title and the um, Princess and Princess of Greece titles didn't matter yeah. from that point onwards. But they were still his and her highnesses because they're princes and princesses of Greece of no not of Denmark yes so yes he was he was at that point you know King Const his majesty King Constantine II of Greece became his highness Prince Constantine of Denmark even though he was still called King Constantine because he had been the king and that's the way things are done he even though he accepted the kind of vote he, he never said, like, oh, it's not fair, I should have been... The... He was like, well, that's what the Greek people say. You know, it's all about the Greek people. He was always very good in his statements. and would be like, it's all about the Greek people. Um, he... It wasn't exactly a very friendly end to the monarchy because they didn't... They were banned from Greece for a very long time. And, you know, when... I, I always think of the time when his mother died in the 80s, so about 20 years later... Um, he went back for the funeral and he was only allowed in the country for like three hours and he was watched in and out because obviously Greece has a history of monarchs just rocking up and taking over. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the first part of Constantine's life, I would say we can define as just chaos. The second part of his life was defined by being a king in exile, a king without a throne. Um, so eventually the family settled in London. They lived in Hampstead, which is a very nice area of London if you aren't uh, from there. Um, 
but much of his life did seem to be kind of taken up with battles around various things with the Greek government. Um, so he wasn't really allowed to go back to Greece. Uh, he wasn't allowed to live there until uh, 2013. Uh, his citizenship and passport were taken from him. And um, that's one of my favorite stories about him because the Greek state said to him, we'll give you back your your citizenship and passport if you take a surname because everybody has to have a surname in Greece um and they you know he essentially was like well you know my family's Danish originally and so our our surname would be Glucksberg and we ca I can't have that as my surname because it's the name of a place and he said I might as well call myself Mr Kensington which is fine <laughs> call yourself Mr like what where does he think the rest of us got our last names from last my last name is like means son of somebody um which is what you know Davidson or Henriksen or all you know all those Johnson those those are because at one point in history somebody in your family was the son of someone called John and that's just carried on that's how all of us got our surnames was because or you know uh oh I'm going to see Billy today which Billy are you going to see oh I'm going to see Billy who works in the butcher oh you mean Billy Butcher that became his last name and that's what happened for all of human history so just pick one um it's call yourself Mr. Glucksberg. That is absolutely fine. No one cares. He was like, I can't do that. Can't possibly have a name as my last name. That sounds awful. Quarantine <laughs> X King. Yeah. And um, so the they also had their property, Tatoy, where he's being buried, was taken from them. And um, because of all these things that had happened. Constantine took the Greek government to the European Court of Human Rights, um, basically saying that, you know, all of these things have been taken away from him and it was a violation of human, his human rights. And they established that the passport and the citizenship thing was not a violation of his human rights because they had, it was a law for everyone. They All he had to do was take a surname and he refused to do it. So it wasn't like they were creating unreasonable conditions. So that wasn't a violation. But they did determine that the Greek state shouldn't have taken his property and he got compensation. He asked for like half a billion uh, and he only got 10 million pounds. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't quite the resounding victory. And that's a whole controversial thing in its own right. But basically, I think his whole life from that point on, even if he might not think it was, and even if his statements weren't necessarily like, I'm the king of Greece and I hate the government, a lot of his life was taken up with battling with the Greek government in one form or another yeah he kept trying to go back to Greece for like really minor things and occasionally like during the 2020 2004 2004 Olympics which were in Athens because he was Mr Mr Olympics they let him back for like this really tiny period of time but it was almost like he wasn't exactly under armed guards but everyone was watching him really closely because they were like can't stare you have to get out <laughs> you can't live here and it was weird because, you know, for a uh, exiled monarch from a country that had then abolished the monarchy and who hadn't particularly been a very good monarch, he was always treated really well. Like he, like, as we've mentioned, he clearly got on well with other monarchs. He was often seen with Charles and Anne because he lived in London. So he was a regular guest at their houses. You know, obviously he spent a lot of time with the Danish monarchy and the Spanish monarchy. Um, Like he was regularly with big monarchs he the olympics gave him because he used to be like a representative of the international olympic committee on behalf of greece when he was made stateless they just made him a general 
like general person. So he was for for if you imagine him kind of like I don't know any other monarch in history who got exiled and after essentially allowing a military coup, they tend not to be treated brilliantly. But it's like everyone were like, oh, but it's only Constantine. He's quite nice. I just let him have everything, and he's you know has led considering he's human rights were violated so badly a very lovely life in london with his family i think ultimately my view of constantine is that i find him quite frustrating because he says a lot of the right things if you read his statements he sounds like somebody who really respects the decision that was made and um isn't trying to he's only trying to get what he thinks is fair he's not trying to you know punish the greek government or punish the greek people or interfere in affairs and all that sort of stuff but then on the other hand as far as i'm aware he makes he does make people in his life still refer to him as your majesty um or did uh he <laughs> awarded honors greek honors to his grandchildren who had never lived in greece all he, he you know he would say things like oh all i want is to be able to live in greece i don't have to live in greece as the king i can live in greece as a normal person but then when he finally got the chance to test that out and see how it went he went there in the early 90s for the first time in decades and he wandered off and started greeting troops at the border like like a king would do. Like that guy, what was the king who walked around? Um, George the George I. George I. George I. He was so popular because he walked around the streets and greeted the ordinary people. And, you know, he started doing that. And it, so it's like, you may say one thing, but then your actions seem to be quite different. And I think... Yeah, I think there's there's a tendency, and it has it's kind of been in the, the news recently in terms of people talking about stairs to the throne, in that people who grow up in a royal family and then leave it or don't have a really key role feel very co- sort of like aimless in life. Yes, and I imagine it's a lot worse when you were genuinely the king of a country mm-hmm. and then you're just a normal person because. All those things that he would have grown up and seen his, you know, his sister as the queen of Spain and his sister-in-law as the queen of Denmark and, you know, friend as the queen of, you know, as Queen Elizabeth II. All these people he knew well doing all these things that there must have been a part of him that thought that's what I, that was my birthright. That's what I should have been doing. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, uh, this kind of leads me into the next section for me, which is like what happens now. But, you know, awarding the honours. There's, I don't think that I don't think he's like he's awarding family honors as far as I'm aware. So he, there's nothing technically I don't think to stop him, but it's just a an understanding of like even if you can technically do something, maybe you shouldn't. Like you yeah. should understand that that was even though you can do that thing, you can call yourself whatever you want. It shows a lack of respect to still call yourself that thing or still make people call you that or still act like that because you don't have that job anymore. So whether you can or not is not important. It's whether you should. And I don't know if he understood that. He did move back to Greece, you know, before he died. Like we said, he moved to in 2013 to Peloponnese and then eventually, like you said earlier, to Athens to be close to a hospital. And I think that does show a, a shift in the way the Greeks viewed him and they probably viewed him less as a threat and more of a slightly sad old man he was so fixated on being ex-king of Greece he kind of that was his personality and it was not necessarily the best one he was he definitely I understand that as somebody who's lived outside of their country of birth for a while now even so I understand that feeling of like you romanticize things the longer you're away from something the more you romanticize it 
And so part like I'm always like, oh, if I could get a job in Scotland and go back to Scotland, I would feel so much better because it's where I'm supposed to be. It's where my it's where I belong. It's my place. And I think like he probably did a bit of that um, <laughs> of sort of like the longer he was away from Greece and the longer he didn't have this purpose, the more he kind of romanticized it as, um, you know, if everything in my life would be OK if I could just go back to Greece. <laughs> but yeah, I think that kind of leads into like what happens now. So the Greeks have always maintained that their titles, their Greek titles, are still valid. And even the Greek government banned the use of noble titles. So um, you can't be like a duke or a duchess or anything because it's a republic and that just doesn't happen. Um, The Greek monarchy seemed to believe that under some sort of convention that happened in the 19th century, they still get to hold their title, the Congress of Vienna. And I did read the whole of the Congress of Vienna for this podcast. Um, (laughs) The, the final agreement of the Congress of Vienna from 1813 or whatever it was. Um, they believe their title, but I mean, it's very shaky justification because Greece didn't even exist at that point. Um, so <laughs> they were not a signatory to this, but they seem to believe that under some obscure international um, treaty, their titles are still uh, valid. I think the big question people have is like, does that mean, because the Greeks seem to think that their titles are valid and mean something, um, but the Greek state disagrees, will... Constantine's son Pavlos who I've discovered all the Greeks call him Paul Pavlos and Marie Chantal his wife will they call themselves king and queen I think that's the big question a lot of people have they are because they're they're in a really weird situation because Pavlos is Paul he is one of the most well-connected royals in quotation marks in Europe because he's the son when he was born he was the son of the reigning king of Greece the grandson of the reigning king of Denmark and the great-grandson of the reigning king of Sweden and he is related to the Spanish royal family the British royal you know he is so well connected on a very close level compared to you know when we're like oh they're all cousins like they're actually not that related they're related to their great great uncle but he was really closely related to a lot of them I mean I will say he's English but yeah he's American he lives in England they got married in England you know he has made no effort to be a Greek person whereas some of his younger siblings have made a bit of an effort they don't want to be king or queen of Greece but they're like oh we have this connection to this country they've not done a very good job of if they wanted to decide to call themselves king queen of Greece put themselves in a very good standing for it and to give them their due so far touch wood they haven't called themselves king queen of Greece yeah it could happen anyway it could happen yeah i mean so if you look at some of the other deposed monarchies um so in romania for example there is margareta who is the would have been well there's a debate about whether or not she would have been queen of romania it's it's a whole thing that i won't get into that's a different podcast episode um but she calls herself custodian of the crown so in other words she's kind of she's keeping it going she's there if you need the crown she's there um if you wanted to reinstate it you know wink wink she's there um but she's not actually the crown she's not she she's not the queen um and so you know they could potentially go that route and start calling themselves the custodian of the greek crown or something like that they could maintain the titles that they've always had and just decide not to upgrade or they could go full out and start referring to themselves as king and queen and making everybody around them call them king, king queen and we'll see like announcements from the British royal families lending their condolence to the king and queen of Greece you know um so I but it comes back to me for that point of like even if we decided that that congress of of Vienna in 1813 was valid 
and they were entitled to use them on the international stage but just not in Greece why would you like they don't yeah. want you and it feel to me it's kind of the whole the whole thing of Constantine's life and of most of the Greek royals lives is I feel it's both a bit disrespectful because I view even if you are legally allowed to use those titles I view them as an honor that a country allows you to have um in order to represent them and so I think it's disrespectful to the people you claim to love to use the titles that they do not want you to have and it's also and this is the, th the theme for me of the second part of Constantine's life it's kind of sad it's so sad it I understand to an extent Constantine yeah. and wife whose name I do not know Anne-Marie Anne -Marie. <laughs> <laughs> being calling themselves king and queen because they were they were the king and queen of Greece and it was very short and they shouldn't, years, shouldn't, have, yeah. shouldn't have done it and they shouldn't really call themselves his and her majesty but I can understand if someone made me like Lady Grace and then took that away from me I would call myself Lady Grace for the rest of my life I'm like uh, no you gave me a title I am having it I call myself Lady Jessica now and I've never been made one so <laughs> so I can understand that but to then to take on a new title yeah after you know for a monarchy that monarchy doesn't exist like, it's not like there is another greek monarchy and you're saying like oh that's a pretended there isn't a greek throne yeah. to be the head of so there isn't a king of greece to have you there's no rules about the succession of the monarchy of greece because it doesn't exist yeah so like it's it's, it's just it's just weird i don't get it i just yeah. don't get it no me neither um so i think you know the, the answer to the question is we don't know what they'll do um but i think we very strongly feel like they should just i mean carry on as normal or just go by paul and, and mary paul and <laughs> paul and marie chantal um greece or glucksburg pick a last name <laughs> pick last name people that's what they need to do that's what i'm going to say for the greeks just pick a last name Ooh. and then maybe we'll see what happens from there can't people just be happy being rich and <laughs> why do they have to have titles as well yeah and having no responsibilities they, they're living the dream it's like if they really want a title they actually have a legitimate royal title they could just be like yeah. well, i am a prince of denmark use the actual real one instead of the made up one you have <laughs> um especially because you're still allowed to keep it even though um margaret has taken it away from actual close relatives of hers you're still allowed to have it <laughs> you're still princess of Denmark yeah I would I would rub that one in all the time oh, yeah. like, as one of the only princesses <laughs> of Denmark out there. that is all we have got for this week's episode I, we hope you enjoyed it if you did please rate us five stars on every single podcast directory you can find it's really helpful um, but until next week it is goodbye from me and goodbye from me Thank you.